Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey local provider and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leppard, financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Good to be here today, guys. Yeah, we're excited to have everybody here on the show today and listening to us. Um, we're right here every Saturday, like today, from nine to ten a.m. And you can catch our podcast yeah. as well. Um, you know, very good way to listen to us. So you, you can get our website. It's website got a link there. You can link to us there. You can listen to us online, of course, on Saturday mornings, and then also uh, you can link to our podcast and listen to our yes. shows. MoneyMD.net. We're on iTunes as well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of ways to listen to the doctors. A lot of ways to listen to doctors. And can't think of a better time to listen than today. That's right. We have a timely show. We do. We have a great <laughs> show lineup for the day. Um, you know, and it's a very important show because we're talking about last year's performance in the stock market. Yeah, it was and very unusual. It was somewhat. A, it was a very it's a pretty unusual year and there's a lot of people that I think are disenchanted with international stocks and with diversification and they're just wanting to buy the you know, the old nifty fifty, if you will. If, you, if somebody has enough gray hair to remember that from the seventies, you know, where you you bought the largest fifty stocks in the world. I mean we're kinda of back to that. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have to I think it's important that we warn people not to fall in that trap. Yeah, we're going to go through some some history. We're going to look at history, and history kind of guides us. It doesn't repeat itself perfectly, but you can take a lot of lessons uh, looking back at history. And there's some people that are making some some drastic mistakes right now, so we're going to try to prevent that. So hang with us. Uh, it's going to be a great topic, and uh, we've got another good topic coming after that. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the different drivers of our future economic growth. Um, you know, some of the different industries and different places mm-hmm. uh, that that are going to be contributing greatly, you know, to... Uh, yeah, there's some positive trends out there. Things coming in the future, yeah. Yeah, that's a great topic. And then we're also going to talk about taxes. I hate to be a downer, oh, but no, it really? is tax season again, mm-hmm. guys. We are in the midst of it right now. And so we're going to talk about some of the most common tax mistakes to avoid. You know, they're as common as dirt. We see them all the time. And we're also going to talk about some last-minute tax moves. You know, there are still some ways to save taxes on last year's tax bill. Oh, yeah. You know, so we're going to talk about the last few moves you can make if you haven't already made those. Well, so we, we don't have to look at that as a downer then. Yeah, you know, down. These are actually money. some good, good piece, pieces of advice that are actually going to help some people. I like it. it. These are you know? very good pieces of advice. All these are very, very positive things. If you look at them in the right lens. Perspective. There exactly. You go. <laughs> So, okay, well, we're going to start off here, though, with the uh, uh, financial, fact. financial fact of the week. Yeah, this has to do with internationals, actually. Um, the, the euro, um, which is a currency, obviously, over in, in Europe, fell about 12% versus the U.S. dollar in, in 2014, and it's dropped another, you know, 6 to 7% in, uh, already in 2015, guys, and that's a... Those are huge Just moves. a month in. It is amazing. In one month, it's dropped 6.8%. But, you know, it, it begs the question, 
when is it going to turn around? And when it does, it'll probably turn big. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen this before. Currencies are very volatile. Well, one of the things when the dollar is stronger versus other currencies, it, it makes the items in the U.S. more expensive, which likely means what we see in history is that they'll they'll sell less products which will likely mean less profits, which likely will mean potentially kind of, some issues in the, the U.S. side. It's kind of a self-correcting problem, it if is. you will, because whenever you have a weak currency like that, everybody wants a weak currency. Most countries, most central banks do, because it helps your economy. And when it helps your economy, eventually your currency gets stronger, because your economy gets stronger relative right. to so, other currencies. So it just goes in a economy. cycle. It does. It, does. it takes a while to go through these cycles. It it's not a, necessarily a month or, you know, it takes, a, you know, sometimes years to go through that cycle. But it's, you know, financial fact is kind of tied in a little bit to our discussion. It is, because whether you know it or not, that's also a big driver in international returns. Yes. It's a big component, because when a dollar gets strong, it hurts your international investments, because they, get, they have to get translated. Those profits have to get translated back in the dollars so it's very interesting very important to understand that because currencies are just a usually they're a zero-sum game they're just volatile they go yes. back and forth over time yes. they're a zero-sum game normally but in 2014 currency was a huge factor huge factor in the negative returns in the international markets that's right it wasn't necessarily the international markets were not the major culprit it was just the strength of the dollar that's right that's right. So then that leads us right into our first topic here, and that is why invest in international stocks? Um, you know, this is a very special topic, very important, because I, I, we see this very recently here in the past mm-hmm. month. People are getting disenchanted with international investing, with diversification, and they need to, to, to gain some perspective That's right. on history. Yeah, and, and guys, you know, we're talking about returns here, historical. We're not trying to predict the markets. No one can predict it. We're just looking back at history a little bit. Uh, when you do invest in international, uh, there's some currency things you have to look at. We just talked about that. There's economic risk, political risk. Um, but the fact is, here's the bottom line. When you add international into a diversified portfolio, over time, the volatility is reduced. And that's a fact. I mean, That's we right. go back and we look at data, and the volatility is reduced. I went back and did a little bit of research, and, um, you know, there's some big names out there that recommend diversification. Schwab does. Fidelity does. Dave Ramsey is a big international person. Susie Orman. Uh, Clark Howard. I mean, so a lot of the mainstream people that you listen to that understand the history recommend that you have international in the portfolios. And the reason they do is it lowers the overall volatility. Now, when you look at it in a month or a year time frame or even sometimes a couple of years, it doesn't tell that story. But when you look at it over time, it certainly does. But, you know, guys, as we just talked about, a lot of people are asking why invest in in, um, in international. I mean, if you look at 2014, international markets were down roughly 5%, and U.S. markets were up about 8%. Now, if you go in down to a level a little bit deeper than that, the S&P 500 index, which a lot of people refer to as the stock market when they say the market is up or the market is down, they're talking about the S&P 500, and that was actually up 14%. So if you compare internationals down 5% and U.S. large up 14%, there's a huge um, discrepancy and disparity there. And, you know, Europe is still not growing, you know, real quickly. Um, Greece is still making, unfortunately, headlines in, in a bad way. Russia's unstable. China has some anemic growth. Uh, dollar's been strong. So 
why would you invest in the internationals? Why would you even hang on to them at this point? It's a, it's yeah. a question we're getting a lot. It is. I mean, we've had numerous clients ask just that very question recently. You know, why the heck aren't we dumping international stocks? Um, you know, so we decided to spend a good portion of today's show on that topic and why diversify. Because international stocks, they did do very poorly in 2014. So, you know, can't we just assume that's going to continue for the future? I mean, why don't we just sit out the rest of, of you know, just sit it out till they start doing better? Um, everyone, if they're honest with themselves, they probably have had that thought or that question. So we're going to take a look at the answer. And, um, you know, there's several points here, but I, I do want to point out, you know, the, the, the U.S., there have been plenty of times in history where this has happened yeah. similarly to last year. Absolutely. You know, and we've seen it return. We've seen it come back. And so this is not unprecedented. No, it's not. It's it's definitely happened several times yeah, you know, in the last thirty or forty years. That's right. It's not it's not a new problem. But first, let's talk about the timing question. You know, should we dump internationals for now until they improve? I mean it's tempting to think that we can time the moves in the market like this at least just a little. Yeah, but aren't internationals going to keep underperforming the US while Things get better, right? You know, there. Um, you know, we've seen this, like you said, over the course of time, and there there's cycles, and it kind of gets back to the adage of, hey, shouldn't we buy low and sell yes. high eventually? Yep, that's you right. Um, so, you know, we we've got a couple of periods where uh, the U.S. say for the last four out of the last five years, the U.S. has beaten internationals hands down. It's a trend, right? <laughs> well, kind of. all right. Look, look back to 1999 to 2009, and the U.S. underperformed yeah. eight of the 11 years. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So, if you look at that time frame, and that's a that's a great point. From 2000 to 2009, the S and P 500 made almost zero. Um, they had some dividends yep. in there, but very, very small. That's basically 10 years. They called that the lo- no lost decade. The lost decade, exactly right. And, um, you know, that was after the S&P 500 averaged 29% wow. um, from 1995 to 1999. So people were piling in in droves of that asset class. Oh, I remember it clearly. Yeah, I, I bet mean, you do. I, I mean, had clients that were just <clears throat> wanting to know why we didn't own more tech stocks, why we didn't own more U.S., why yep. we own any internationals. We were too diversified, you yeah. know. There was always something underperforming that was hurting us. I mean, you, you heard all the arguments. And they were ready to bet the house, weren't they? Just about. Yeah, I and mean, then so for, for 10 years after that, they made zero. I mean, so that is the reason why we diversify, because making zero for 10 years, it'll wreck most retirements, and also it'll change how long you have to work. Um, so adding the internationals into the mix, some small cap stocks, some bonds, it allows you to reduce your volatility. It just does. And one year it may not um, look perfect, but when you look at it over time, it's worked. I mean, adding uh, internationals and having diversification has reduced the volatility. So I think we'll, we've got some more information to share with you uh, after yeah. the break here. Yeah, when we come back from the break, we'll talk more about this. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call during regular business hours at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is an advisor at Richard Young Associates. 
We are continuing our discussion here before the break. Um, very important topic, guys. Why invest in international stocks? Why why be diversified today? I mean, you know, isn't it obvious, guys? I mean, internationals are, are in this ditch and they're going to stay yeah. there for ten for, years. Forever. Some people have said, and yeah, I mean, you and know, it, why why not just wait till things get better? Yeah, right. That's, good, that's kind of the question. It's a great right? question, and you know, the U.S. has outperformed the internationals four out of the last five years, so it feels that way. But if you go back and look at history. Um, from 2000 uh, to, to 2009, the S&P 500 made basically zero. And um, for folks that followed the trends and only invested in the U.S. after a great period for the S&P 500 back in the late 90s, they made zero. So a lot of retirements were were wrecked. Some people had to go back to work. Some people had to continue to work. So, you know, the reason to diversify, um, you know, the data that we see, um, the swabs, the fidelities, Ramsey, Clark Howard, a lot of people out in the industry recommend diversification because the, the U.S. markets, they go through good periods and they go through down periods. So diversifying reduces volatility, period. That's what it boils down to. And we've seen that, um, you know, so that's part of what we recommend is staying out of the ditch. If you actually went all U.S. at this point, that's more risky than having a diversified portfolio. So if you go back all the way to 1970, the international markets have beaten the U.S. markets 24 out of 45 times, 45 years. And so the internationals have had better performance 53% of the time. And so we're not saying go all international, but having some in there helps to, to balance it out. It helps to to um to make sure the volatility is down a little bit and if you look at the US and international markets the lead switches about every 2 months on average it changes very very quickly and trying to predict it is is almost impossible um it's random i mean no one can sit down and say now's the time to invest in this and when it does change it can change big and you won't recognize it until it's too late so don't try to time it. Do some rebalancing. Uh, Gordon, you mentioned that earlier. Do some rebalancing in this process and um, stay diversified. That's that's a key key piece here. Yeah, those those are great points. And you know, another reason though that that people stay away from internationals is a lot of times they will say they're multinational companies give them their international exposure mm-hmm. because you know they'll have some stocks that are big multinational stocks mm-hmm. like most S and P five hundred stocks are. And they have international holdings and international, you know, uh, you know, segments of their company, and so they think that gives them the the, the um, gives them the exposure need. I mean, we hear that argument all the time. Large U.S. stocks are multinational companies. However, research shows that U.S. stocks follow their own market or asset class, regardless of whether they have overseas holdings. So it really comes down to a question of what is true diversification. You know, of course, diversification is only important for those of us who can't predict the future. And <laughs> that would, uh, guys, right? I think that pretty well covers most of us, the side of heaven. I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm in. So, you know, I mean, it is important. I sat down with a retired couple here a few years ago. I remember clearly they had almost all of their life savings in one employer stock. I hope it wasn't Enron. Yeah, it wasn't. But, I mean, still, you know, they used the typical argument. I mean, it was a global company with income around the world. You know, I pulled up the 10-year return of that stock, and it had made 0% just like the S&P 500 had done without dividends back then. You know, the graph looked very similar to S&P 500. So I asked them, I said, where is the diversification? You know, emerging markets returned 13% per year over that same 10-year period. 
You know, and I told them, I mean, it's crazy. And they, they did agree. They did recognize the fallacy in their argument. But at the same time, emotionally, they said, well, you know, we need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, the exposure. Yeah. That they were lending themselves to it as well. It was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, Steve, to your point, stocks in general follow their perceived asset class, period. I mean, that's what the data shows us. We, we're big data folks, and we look at that kind of stuff. And, you know, look at Microsoft, where they spared the uh, tech crash of 2000 because it was a great global company. No, I mean, they were down like 62%. And, you know, if it traded on the NASDAQ, it, it got killed regardless of where they were so you know meanwhile during that time frame you know international stocks they were down about 20 percent but the nasdaq was down about 78 percent so you know having the argument that you have some international exposure in these large u.s caps it doesn't hold water you know and so that's a that's a great uh conversation on that we also look at internationals helping in a recovery i mean back in 2009 we saw the u.s was up about 23 percent but emerging markets was up 78 percent you go back to 2003, S&P 500 was up about 29%. Great year. International large value was up 69%. So, there you go. You know, having some of these different asset classes, they do different things at different times. From the years of 2000 to 2009, we've talked about the S&P 500 making about zero. Diversified portfolio made about 7%. So, you know, you've got to have some different pieces of the puzzle because they behave differently over time. Well, you know, we're talking about the, the puzzle. And what part of this puzzle does the U.S. actually represent? That's a good question. Okay. Well, it represents actually less than 50% of the total world's wealth. And there are over 6 billion people that live outside of the U.S., that want to live like we do here, and mm-hmm. that's one thing that helps drive, you know, our economy because they're wanting to to buy and consume our goods, uh, and so they're they're chasing that American dream. But you know, the, the U.S. only has, like I said, less than fifty percent, and so you, you have to be diversified. You can't just be stuck in one yeah. one area there. Yeah, and there's some reasons why people don't diversify in internationals. I mean, one of the reasons which we've talked about is the trend is the U.S. outperforming. Um, that's one of the reasons why they don't do it, and we've kind of debunk that myth, if you will. They, they go through cycles, but also some people don't feel comfortable investing in countries they don't know. I mean, 82% in a recent survey said they feel said they feel they needed to know the on-the-ground situation in the country. That's like saying you'll never be on a plane because you don't understand how it works. Um, you know, to be able to, to do that, that's why you use mutual funds and, and those processes. And um, obviously, if you, uh, if you feel that way, you'll never invest uh, overseas. And, and a quarter of people said they didn't know how to do that. So there's a lot of different reasons why people don't invest in internationals, um, and we're trying to help you on the reasons to invest associated with it. Yeah, and, an, and another reason, another thing you got to keep in mind is growth overseas may significantly outpace the growth in the U.S. going forward. You know, I mean, our growth has been stuck in the 2-3% GDP growth for a long, long time now. The world overall has outpaced U.S. in growth almost every year since 2000. I mean, don't you think $18 trillion of U.S. debt is going to hurt U.S. growth? At some point, yeah. At some point, it certainly is. I mean, international growth may outpace ours. I mean, since business sometimes is friendlier than in the U.S., and we've got to change that. You know, corporate taxes rank second in the world in the U.S., only behind Japan, according to Wikipedia. And now the administration wants to raise them again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I mean, there there are some headwinds in the U.S., too. There's always issues that come up down the road, you, you cannot predict them um, which countries are going to have the higher growth. 
down the road. And it's not that we think U.S. won't be a great country or have great days ahead. It will. But, you know, the difference in world GDP growth in the U.S. has widened over the past 10 years. Developed countries, stocks look relatively cheap now compared to history and certainly compared to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we would probably recommend, you know, 40% of your stocks in your portfolio be outside the U.S. You know, it was interesting. I was When I was doing the research on this, um, looking at Clark Howard, he actually recommends 40% be in the U.S., 60% in international. Wow. And that's based on the uh, the world wealth and kind of the fact that you said about, you know, so many people outside the the U.S. I was surprised that he went up to 60%. But Yeah, and I don't know. mean 40% of your whole portfolio, no. but of the part that you have in equities, That's if right. you're 60% equities, then 40% would be 24% international, mm-hmm. 25%, somewhere in that range. Right. Um, you know, and, and also, I think you need to have at least four different asset classes, you know, not just one or two. So you need to have international small and small value and large value and emerging markets. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, that gets back to what you were talking about earlier as well. Um, with the the falling dollar and and the strength of the dollar and how that affects, um, you know our current exchange mm-hmm. uh, and and the trade that's often involved there. When the U.S. dollar often falls, uh, when the U.S. economy is weak compared to others, you know having a, a diversified portfolio kind of helps offset that. So slower growth due to large government debt could also push our dollar down. Yeah, that's right. You know which would. Help international. That's right. right. In, in 2014, I mean, the opposite was was true. Obviously, we talked about the U.S. dollar being extremely strong, um, and you can't predict currency, you know, fluctuations as well. It, it just helps to to uh, to diversify the portfolio. And kind of the takeaways here is international diversification helps reduce volatility. It's proven. And we see the data, we see the stats. It doesn't mean in a year, but over time, it's a great way to reduce volatility. So stay out of the ditch. I mean, don't follow the crowds here. Stay focused on your plans. Stay focused on your goals. Uh, diversify, you know, 20 to 40% of your portfolio in international stocks. Um, international countries have 6 billion people out there. So we think the growth is is um, is going to be there. Valuations look attractive. I guess the bottom line is here, we can't predict the future. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But historically, um, being diversified has has proven to reduce volatility and been a good way uh, to invest. And so that's that's why we're big believers in it. A lot of people out there from Ramsey to Clark Howard to Schwab feel the same way. And it can change on a dime. You know, here in the past month, as we sit here today, internationals have beaten U.S. significantly just in the past month. I mean, who would have predicted that, you know, after last year? So yep, it changes very, very quickly. Don't try to time it. That's the moral of the story here. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call during regular business hours, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who's a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is an advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are going to lead off our second segment here with the question of the week. And this question has to do with rebalance, and we talk about that periodically on our shows. And so the question is, is how often should I do rebalancing? Um, 
It's a great question. Uh, a couple different ways to do it. You can do it annually on a um, certain date, maybe January. Um, quarterly is acceptable as well. Uh, we look at our, our clients' portfolios on a quarterly basis, and yeah. when we get out of a tolerance, we do that. Um, you know, but, but do some rebalancing. I mean, we talk about kind of what you mentioned earlier, Gordon, about, you know, U.S., maybe take a little sliver off of that and put it into something that is on the bottom. Like they, internationals? Like internationals, because they go in cycles. Might be a good time for that. Might be a good time. Yeah, exactly. So annually is, is fine. Uh, quarterly works as well. But do some type of rebalance. And it's, it's shown to, to help with the volatility as And well. it's a disciplined way to force yourself to sell a little bit of what's high and buy a little bit of what's low. Right. And people will not do that intuitively on their own. It, you have to have a discipline for doing that. Rebalancing does it. Well, it's hard to do. It's not an easy process. Says if you're trying to do this on your own. So. No, it's not. It's well, not. emotionally speaking, and when we're talking about market timing, people, they start to see an upswing in something, and they want to jump into it. You know, and a lot of times that's too late. They want to buy yeah, what's so by, like you said, by just implementing a strategy like this, it really helps uh, stay consistent with buying high. Excuse me, buying low. Yes, that's and right. Selling so high. That's exactly. That's what we're to get to there. All right. Good question, yeah. though. And that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is um, – the drivers for future economic growth. Um, you know, there's some big things going on in, in our economy here and around the world that really is starting to drive some new growth in economies. And Well, like you said, it's not not only an American issue or American thing going on. It's a global reinventing uh, of itself. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, gone are the days of excessive leverage and, and dominance of Wall Street. I mean, you know. The stock market and the and the world economy um, historically has been led by banks, but there's a lot of other things going on. And you know the the economy is transitioning from a financial services economy in this in this country um, into something much more real. And that's coming from uh, Meredith Whitney. She's the uh, former Wall Street analyst who who ran who now runs a, a hedge fund. As the stock market turns its page on on the worst month in a year, and this is um, uh, talking about in January, the uh, ongoing economic transformation leaves investors wondering uh, what are the real Real drivers of future economic growth, and I'll just start. It doesn't say in the article, but we talked about it earlier. There's six billion people out in outside the United States that that one. Most of them, not all of them, unfortunately, but most of them want to have capitalism and live like we like we live today. And so, a lot of these things we're talking about is not only going to be for U.S., but it's going to be for the the world economy as well. Yeah, I mean, they're working hard to do that. And this article out of CNN Money here. Um, about the drivers of future economic growth um, really points out some interesting things that I think are, are, are definitely big steps, are big drivers of future growth. You know, and the biotech boom is one of those. I mean, health care certainly seems to be one of the drivers. You know, the worldwide, we're all getting older, right? The, the population's getting older in no. general. No, we're not. No, you right. don't feel you're right. Uh, yeah, well, no. I definitely feel older, but <laughs> yeah, it, the numbers it's keep getting number. older. But it's just a number. It's Remember just a that. number. It's just a number. But yeah, I mean, the uh, the the population is aging with the baby boomers, and you know the industry that's a big winner as a result of that over the past year and and over time is starting to become uh you know healthcare is starting to become biotechs mm-hmm. you know as the demographic shifts um apparently the only way to support the influx of the aging and newly insured participants is to medicate according to Whitney <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it you know we all are taking more drugs i think there's a CVS or a Walgreens on every single corner now yeah, it's no amazing doubt. 
you know. But um, yeah, speaking at the ETF conference last week, this uh, recently that's what she said, and that's a big positive for companies like biotech. Rock star companies, you know, that's maker of the new drugs that are popping up everywhere with with amazing earnings. And then the more traditional pharmaceutical companies also should benefit from this demographic shift. You know, they're reporting record sales nowadays. I had a doctor tell me uh, a couple months ago that in 50 years he sees um, there being tests that will tell us exactly what our diseases are. And there's some of those that are, you know, developed now. And he said in 100 years there'll be cures for all those diseases. So he thinks we're going to our life expectancy is going to just accelerate drastically over the next 100 years. I'm not sure if we'll live to see that, but technology is amazing. Well, it's also that's a that's a business too. Yeah, so no doubt. We'll, we'll see how much of that this is true. cure uh, is actually released. You know, a, another thing that um, is definitely a driving force uh, in the global economy which we've all experienced especially here in the US is our gas prices, cheap oil. You know, and that that equates to more manufacturing jobs. Uh, Whitney also uh, looked back and she said, you know, back in 2007, uh, she precedently predicted Citigroup uh, was in serious financial trouble. Believes the the labor market will get a shot in the arm from manufacturing sectors. Her thinking is that relatively cheap energy cost in the U.S. will prompt manufacturers to bring more jobs back here. Mm-hmm. You know, so we'll we'll see if that actually. Uh, comes true or not but you know a fresh look at the overall labor market is due out this friday uh when the government releases new numbers for 2015 uh, this comes on the heel of the best year of employment since 1999 mm-hmm. they said so that that is you know, that's a positive factor uh anytime we see some job increase um and while there were some lackluster holiday sales you know that's worrying some investors uh whitney is confident that consumers are going to prove willing to spend not just save you know she's saying that the average investor or excuse me the average person Mm -hmm. uh that drives should experience up to 750 dollars of savings this year so that's more money going back into the economy yeah Yeah, that's huge prices here in south carolina and georgia are just amazingly cheap we just filled up our vehicle we have we have a suburban um put 40 dollars worth of gas in it um for like 26 gallons and i was telling my son matthew that a couple years ago it was close to a hundred dollars yeah, yeah. You know, that's a huge savings. It really is. So. It is. It's a lot of money in everybody's pocket worldwide. I mean, yeah. it's happening across the globe, you know. Oh, it absolutely is, which helps the consumers. I mean, the consumers want to go out and spend on restaurants. so Which helps know, the stock market. Absolutely. More <laughs> earnings, right? There you go. Um, you've got, um, you know, places that people like to visit, resorts and uh, and theme parks and so forth. And, um, you know, also uh, retail- retailers. People are out spending uh, their money. Automakers could also possibly benefit from this as well. So consumers having more money in their pockets, not only in the U.S., but also international as well, helps helps the um, the economy. If you look at Europe, um, you know, they're going to be looking to, 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 to buy probably less U.S. because of the, the cheap euro. And so that helps them and their economy as well. So there's a lot of different positive things on the consumer side. There is. Um, yeah, and another $1 trillion present that's out there, by the way, another key is that the future economic growth could be roads, um, could be infrastructure. Hmm. You know, you heard President Obama here in the recent uh, budget proposal. Uh, he proposed something like a trillion dollars spending on on um, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that's and that's one of the things. America's aging infrastructure badly needs a facelift, and 
you know, she points out here in this article that a trillion dollars of spending on road bridges and tunnels is needed. Politicians in Washington are slowly realizing that it would be good for the economy, too. So she really kind of sees that coming. I don't know if we'll get something that big, but we'll probably get some kind of infrastructure spending. And, and I think it's something we should continue to do. I really think it should be budgeted like $100 billion a year and just sure. continue to do it. Keep not it have up. these That's right. maintenance instead of just repair. Yeah, not have these huge these huge bills that, that add to the deficit. Instead, just build it into the budget like everybody else does. Oh, world. you're too logical. I know. It just <laughs> makes me crazy, though, the way, they Washington, the way they do this in Washington, you know, yeah, with these huge bills. And it won't be passed, I mean, so that we'll have some patchwork and – and it will help the economy. I mean, you know, government spending always helps the economy. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get a lot of private spending, too. But anyway, that leads us up here to our uh, prescription prescription of the week. Yeah, this is to, um, to focus on your plan. Um, you know, how much are you saving to meet your retirement goals? Uh, do you have an emergency fund? Are you managing debt? Um, you know, you, you control some of the personal things. Uh, for the most part, you don't control the markets. Um, so if you can focus on your plan, make sure you're on track. You may need to make some adjustments with that. Maybe you need to, to save a little bit more, be more aggressive, less aggressive. There's some things that you can you can uh, can do. Don't, I wouldn't make any drastic changes to your plan unless something has happened. But just if you focus on your plan, it can, it can relieve a little bit of stress in your life because you don't control all these market factors. That's it. Just stop looking at your investments sometimes. You know, focus on the long term. Focus on... Your overall strategy, is it working? Are you mm. getting where you need to be? Stop trying to micromanage the things you cannot control, just as you mentioned, right. which is the stock market and the economy. You that know, and just take the time to sit down with your financial professional yes, and talk about it. Because a lot of times, uh, one thing that drives our fear is just not knowing That's or right. understanding. No, so ask, ask those questions. Yeah, very good point. That's it. Okay, well, that leads up to our break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is an advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are going to uh, start off our last segment here with a new topic. Well, guys, it is tax time. Um, Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, that is a time when everybody gets a little anxious, right, about, you know, getting all the tax information together and paying the man, you know, paying the man and trying to get organized and, you know, there's a lot of stress and conf- confusion, I think, that goes with that process, right? But there are some common mistakes that people make that can easily be avoided. And there are also still some important moves that you can make that lower your tax bill. Unfortunately, though, most people procrastinate to the last minute. And that adds a lot of likelihood, quite frankly, to the to the to the mistakes that you're going to be mis- make mistakes and opportunities are going to be missed. CPAs say that those same people that put it off to the last minute end up forgetting to focus on the important issues like estimated taxes, deductibles, and cost basis. So you know, and these people end up overpaying and incurring audits or penalties. So the first step is making sure that you get a good start early in March on your taxes and avoid these costly mistakes and making sure that you 
you know, you get any deductions that you might be entitled to. Yeah, you know, the best way to avoid the errors which result in these penalties or delays or, or maybe even trigger an audit for that matter is to have, you know, a good record-keeping process. Be organized. Even the smallest errors or omissions, it can have costly consequences. Um, so make sure you organize your bills, vouchers, receipts, um, that you so you can easily file, uh, find them and um, file them. Uh, you know when you do your returns, and also become familiar with the IRS rules and regulations, um, so you know what records uh, that you need to have and for how long. And obviously, when we're talking about taxes, we always recommend consulting a tax professional, a CPA, or someone who does that for a living, because. You know, if you mess up, um, you get the IRS um, sending you letters. It could be scary. Yeah, and it's really not worth it. I mean, you know, if you can get it, get your taxes done for a couple hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And the software nowadays costs like a hundred dollars between filing it and buying the software. So, you know, it might be smart just to go to a tax professional. But regardless, I mean, organization really is the key to avoiding the the costly mistakes. Um, but first, though, let's talk about the things you can do to still lower your tax bill for last year um, or down the road, because there are some things you can still do. And how about making sure you've contributed everything you can to retirement plans? I mean, that's an obvious one, but very few people max out their IRAs or their Roth each year and get the full tax deduction. You can add $5,500 a year to your IRA for last year, and you can do it all the way up to tax filing time. It's $6,500 if you're over 50. So that's a very important important thing to do. And by the same token, if you have a business, you may have a simple IRA plan. And if so, you can usually make a contribution to that all the way up until you file your taxes, um, as long as you account for it properly in your business. That's $12,000 you can put into a simple plan if you're under 50 or 50. Or fourteen thousand five hundred if you're over fifty, mm-hmm. you know, and that all goes up another five hundred to a thousand dollars this year. Yeah. So yep. that's a real important deduction. Well, and then if you have kids in college uh, or planning to go to college, you can still take full advantage of your five twenty nine plans. Uh, you know, the president brought something up about that last yeah. week about potentially taxing those, and uh, I heard that some some Democrats secretly uh, went to him and said, "We might not want to do that." Yes, you know. Right. So I think they scrapped that. <laughs> they did uh, yeah. off the table. But you know, there there are definitely some um, advantages for some of your state income taxes. South Carolina has no income limit on that deduction, and uh, and it's up to the full fifty thousand dollars per year that you can write off dollar for dollar. Um, you know that that you can contribute. Uh, Steve, do you know how much it is in Georgia? Uh, well, two, I think it's only two thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, yeah. And in South Carolina, the limit's really like fifty three or something. I think. That yeah, was, and you can also put some contributions in. Um, you know, uh, for two kids, like if you just right, you know if you have right, multiple yeah. kids, so right. I split it there. A good friend up in Greenville, and I was talking to him recently. It's amazing people don't know about the five twenty nine plan, and um, he's got a son that's going to Emory um, coming in the fall, and. Uh, you know, so he and I talked about it a little bit, and so he's going to put. He's got two sons. He's going to put a whole bunch of money yeah, down. Needs to. Into, wow. Yeah, it's a great tax savings. It's vehicle. a huge, you know, state tax. He puts a hundred thousand in, and he's in a seven percent bracket. That's a seven thousand dollar tax savings. Savings right there oh, off so the bat. He was yeah. a happy camper. Yeah, when I, I used to use that religiously whenever my when I was saving for college, yeah. my kids got in, right. and yeah, that was a sweet tax deduction. And I would do it in like March. Yeah, you know, so you can do it all the way up to tax filing time. So people forget about that. Okay, so but anyway, that's about it for the deductions that are left for last year. There aren't many things you can do, but those are three key ones. Um, but so let's talk about some common filing mistakes because it's amazing how many common 
mistakes that people make, and they result in penalties, time-consuming, costly audits. So here are some of the most common ones that we see. Um, first one here on the list is not including information from your 1099-B from the sale of stocks or mutual funds. We see this all the time. It's amazing to me, but it's partly because people file their taxes too early. Guys, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting, but financial companies now don't have to send out these 1099Bs or their consolidated 1099s till the end of February mm. because they changed the cost basis laws back a few years ago. And yet people still, with investments, they still want to file their taxes early. They want to do it, you know, early in February. You can't do that. The bottom line is you probably can't file until March if you have a taxable investment account like an individual or a joint brokerage account. That's just the, the facts of life nowadays. You know, and then there are a lot of people who would try to do their own taxes and they simply overlook the ten ninety nine B and they just kind of skip the Schedule D altogether, which right. is for capital gains. Um, that's going to result in a nasty shock around May of the following year. Usually it's about a, it's over a year before you get that letter, but in May of the following year, the IRS will send you a letter claiming that you owe taxes on all of it, and they'll assume you had no cost basis, so the number will be shocking. You don't want to get that letter. Yeah, and the second one here on the list is, is errors due to simple calculation mistakes. It's surprisingly about 20% of taxpayers still file their returns uh, by paper, and um, you know they could do it electronically for free. I mean, if you uh, if your income is under fifty eight thousand, then you can e file for free. And if you do it by paper, then the check and um, then you have to check and recheck your numbers to make sure the the simple math errors are are uh, not there. And remember, the IRS they automatically check your details. Uh, against your W-2 and your 1099s, and uh, any discrepancy will delay refunds and cause other problems. I had a, a friend that m- uh, mistakenly put a uh, wrong Social Security number on there, and they almost ended up garnishing his wages um, because they, he didn't get that deduction. So they'll come after you. They certainly will. Yeah, another common f- mistake here is using the 1040 EZ form. Um, that EZ form is a shortcut, but it can be expensive for many taxpayers because you don't get to itemize your deductions with the with the 1040 EZ form. And even with the simple tax returns, you may want to choose a full form so you can um, maximize your deductions for student loan interest, alimony, charitable deductions, and other common expenses. So don't do that one. Yeah, like you guys, you know, you also talked about staying uh, staying organized, and people, they, they miss it when they neglect to keep track of tax info, such as charitable contributions, cost basis, medical expenses, and interest paid. Without this info, you're, no, uh, you're not able to claim all of your deductions, and you have to assume a worst-case scenario without any documentation. Uh, maintaining proper details and records of all contributions, investments, capital gains, tax payments made by investment managers and the likes that truly can save you a lot of time and uh you know a lot on your taxes yeah yeah another common mistake is using the wrong tables or worksheets which is kind of amazing today with computers but you know a lot of people still do it by paper and they use the wrong tables to kept to and make calculations and that's a recipe for disasters um as is filing under the wrong status which is another common one you can avoid all those if you just simply use some tax software. It calculates all of that for you. I mean, that's the easy solution. Or someone who does taxes for a living. I mean, that's yeah, another that's great. Another, we talked about that. That's another good way to do it. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's two things that are certain in life: death and taxes. Right. I've that's met right. I've met people that haven't filed taxes in a couple of years. I'm like, 
they're going to come knocking. And so some people actually miss the deadline without filing an extension. If you absolutely must delay filing in April, you still have to submit a form. It's called 4868 by April 15th to get a legitimate extension. So it's going to catch up with you. You can't just extend it yourself. That's right. No, you can't. You have to ask permission with that form. Yeah, I mean, uh, the guys, kind of the shortcut here is electronic filing is the ideal way to avoid a lot of these mistakes. You know, I mean, the software programs include all the necessary forms. They do all the calculations for you. You don't have to worry about those things. And also you have last year, you can import your data and you kind of know what to expect from last year's return mm-hmm. if you filed electronically. So if you do it yourself, for heaven's sake, you know, do it electronically. E-filings also process more quickly. You can get a refund in as little as 14 days if you e-file. Um, but get organized. You know, make sure you do everything on time. Get an early start. Don't delay this year. Go ahead and get started on that, getting your stuff together, and start your taxes early. Yeah. That's kind of the moral of the story here. So, all right. Well, that brings us to a close to this week's edition of Money MD. Um, tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. You can email us your questions there. We'd love to hear from you. You can link to us there um, directly, or you can email us at info at moneymd.net. And also, you have our podcast. Download those. Uh, link to them right off of our website, moneymd.net. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.